Before we read the Word of God this morning, let us take a moment for instruction from the Shorter Catechism. If you are not familiar with catechisms, they are um, a Presbyterian way of teaching the Bible systematically. And the only intention of a catechism is, is just that, to, to teach us what the Bible says in a systematic fashion. And this morning's question is number 19. Let's read this responsively. What is the misery of man's fallen condition? By their fall, all mankind lost fellowship with God and brought his anger and curse on themselves. They are therefore subject to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Let us pray as we sing, seeking God's blessing for the reading and hearing of his word. have come to listen to your word. Speak to us now and let your voice be continue the sermon series through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. We come now in chapter 1 to verse 18. We'll read to the conclusion of the chapter. Let us hear the word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became Futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature 
rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise honor, and dominion. Amen. Well, the instruction from the Shorter Catechism, number 19, which we just read, serves as a fitting introduction to this sermon this morning, because now at chapter 1, verse 18, we come to the bad news. The bad news concerning the fallen human Condition, the bad news about you and me and all humanity in our fallen state. And we're going to spend a few weeks here in this passage, 118 to the end of the passage, not going to cover the entire passage this morning. In fact, I'm going to address only that opening paragraph that will take us down to verse 23. But I wanted you from the very beginning to see the whole context of this passage this divine diagnosis that begins at Romans 1.18. Now, here's the other thing that, it's, it's, it, it, it's, that I want you to see, that this introduces a major section in Paul's letter to the Romans. So we, we, we kind of need to get out of the trees and get up above and see the forest, if you will, because from... Where we start today, 118 through chapter 3, verse 20, that's a major section. And we're going to be here a while. It's a major section in which Paul sets forth the divine indictment of the entire human race. First of all, an indictment of the Gentile world, which is here in chapter 1. And then the Jewish world in chapter 2. But you have to see 118 through 320 as a major section of the bad news. The way things are with fallen humanity, Jew and Gentile. And that is guilty without excuse. Now... Just in case you hadn't been with us in the preceding weeks, and don't don't forget, everybody, this is a sermon series, 
And one sermon builds on the other, and you can access these sermons online. And it's going to be important if you want to grow through this series, and I hope that you do, that you listen consistently and consecutively through these sermons. Because the preceding two sermons, this is very important, the preceding two sermons focused on the good news, the announcement of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile. And it leads into verse 17, the thesis or the theme of this letter, justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, a new right standing with God through faith in Christ. But here's the thing, in order for us really to understand, to not simply to understand, but to rejoice in, to receive, believe, celebrate, give thanks for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to understand and come to terms with the bad news. And that's where we are beginning today at 1.18. By the way, when you get to chapter 3 at verse 23, Paul sums up this section of the bad news by saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, when you memorize that in your Sunday school class or on your grandmother's knee or when you heard the evangelist at a revival say, all have sinned, and, 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 he, and, and that came across to you like every one of you has sinned and you need to be saved from the wrath of God, that's, that's true. That's true. But Paul's point really there is all, humanity as a whole, Jew and Gentile, there is no escape from the indictment, guilty, without excuse. The whole mass of humanity. As C.S. Lewis put it, we are a ruined species. Mm. So, here we go. In chapter 1 here, the focus is primarily on the sin and the moral degradation of the Gentile world. As I said in chapter 2, Paul will address the problem of sin in the Jewish world, but here it is focusing uh, on the Gentile world. And verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is God's pure and holy and righteous anger against sin. Now we must not in any way equate the wrath of God with sinful Human rage. The wrath of God does not in any way refer to God's losing his temper or flying off the handle into a fit of rage. God's wrath is a manifestation of his righteous judgment upon sin and it flows out of his holiness. 
Now, I want to pause here and you think about this. Think carefully. How often have you heard it said? It's very common. You will hear something like this. Well, my God is not a God of wrath and judgment. My God is a God of love. Have you ever heard that or something very like it? Okay? That statement poses a false contradiction. A false contradiction as though, as though there were some kind of conflict between God's wrath and God's love, as though they were opposed to one another, as though, as though God's wrath were the opposite of God's love, or that God's love were the opposite of God's wrath. That's a false contradiction. That is not the case, and here's why. God's wrath against sin is his holy hostility and righteous judgment against everything that is opposed to his goodness and his glory and which therefore brings suffering and misery into his creation. Now, if God, think, here we go, if God had no righteous anger against that which is evil and which wrecks human life, and makes a horrible, miserable mess of this world? If he had no righteous anger against that, he would not be a God of love. He would simply be a God who does not care. A God of apathy toward the misery in this world. God's wrath is not the opposite of God's love. Uncaring apathy would be the opposite of God's love. God's love for the world demands, requires, necessitates the reality of God's wrath against sin. The wrath of God, the holy, righteous anger of God is revealed from heaven. From heaven emphasizes, yeah, the seriousness of the matter. Heaven is God's special dwelling place, his throne room, the place of his judgment seat from which his sovereign decrees are issued. The wrath of God revealed from heaven, that phrase from heaven simply emphasizes the fact that, yes, God sees and God knows, and the wrath of God revealed from heaven is a wrath which cannot be avoided, averted, or resisted by any power of man. What is the wrath of God revealed against? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now the words ungodliness and unrighteousness are practically synonymous and interchangeable, but we can think of ungodliness specifically as having to do with primarily man's 
rebellion against God, his refusal to honor God in terms of worship and obedience. We might say the violation of the first tablet of the Ten Commandments, ungodliness. And then unrighteousness has to do more specifically with man's injustice, unrighteousness, injustice toward his fellow man, his neighbor, disobedience to the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. Again, they're linked, they're connected, they overlap, one leads to the other, practically synonymous and interchangeable. It refers to the thoroughgoing sinfulness of fallen humanity, the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men which separate us from God and from our neighbor. Now, who are these, who are these men? Who are these unrighteous? Who are they referred to in this passage? Now, this is important. <laughs> they are us. Okay, like toys are us, they are, they are us. This passage and this sermon is not about those people out there. <laughs> it's addressed to us in our fallen nature. It is the reality of our fallen sinfulness, our original sin, our rebellious nature against God, we in our fallenness are the ones who are being indicted here and called to stand before the bar of God's justice. So, for example, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul said essentially the same thing this way. Again, here's the divine diagnosis of who... Of, of you and of me, apart from the saving, regenerating, justifying, sanctifying grace of God through Jesus. Who, who we are in and of ourselves, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ and apart from our union with Him through faith, Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. What's that telling us? Everyone is born spiritually dead. But it is a, it's worse than that because it is a living spiritual death, a kind of zombie life in which we are quite naturally bent against God under the domination of Satan and our own sinful nature, children of wrath. Not a pretty picture. 
And not anything you're going to read about in some positive thinking self-help book either. But it is the picture which the Word of God clearly portrays of us in our fallenness. And that's, that's kind of hard for us to take in because you know what? We're pretty good people, aren't we? We kind of clean up pretty well. The Heidelberg Catechism, as it starts its first section, asks the question, uh, can you keep all of the law of God perfectly? Well, you know, I mean, in our, in our day and age, we, we, we might sort of make up our own catechism answer and say, well, you know, we don't keep the law of God perfectly because nobody's perfect. <laughs> well, the answer that the Heidelberg Catechism gives, can you keep all of the law of God perfectly? No. Because by nature, I am prone to hate God and hate my neighbor. Really? Really? That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says that's in us, in our fallenness. We're born into the world with that venom running in our veins. What is the result or fruit of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. The word suppress can mean to hold back, to hold down, to hinder. Now, this is sinful man's unwillingness to live according to the truth, in line with the truth about God. It is sinful man's desperate attempt let me just say it. It's us in our sinful nature, our desperate attempt to do everything to deny, push out of our consciousness, not deal with the truth. And what is the truth which we in our fallenness suppress by our unrighteousness? It is the truth. Here it is. It is the truth that there is a God of infinite and eternal power and glory to whom... All men and all women are accountable, and I am not that God. Verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. It is plain to all humanity, because God has shown it to them. Now, this is a remarkable and powerful verse. People want evidence for God. The Bible says that God has already shown them, us, the evidence. Now, when someone says, I would believe in God if he would just show me, if he would just show me that he exists, God doesn't take that bait. God is not accountable to that person. God says, I have already shown you and you know it. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, which would include divine attributes such as his omnipresence, omniscience, his wisdom, his sovereignty, have been clearly perceived. <laughs> Listen to that. His invisible attributes have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world. 
in the things that have been made. Everybody, everybody has seen God's invisible attributes on display in the works of creation. You don't have to be a scientific genius. You don't have to be able to explain the wonders of the solar system or the intricacies of the human eye to know that there is an eternal and all-powerful God. What the scripture is saying is that you and I, in fact, are born with that knowledge. New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner comments, quote, God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind his existence and power so that they are instinctively recognized when one views the created order. God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind his existence and power. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 104 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom you have made them all. It is an innate, inborn, and immediately intuitive knowledge. The knowledge that there is an eternal and all-powerful creator and that you are not he. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. And in our fallen condition, everybody suppresses that truth. So says the word of God in verse 20, they are without excuse. Now, this is the divine charge against all humanity. All humanity is without excuse for not worshiping, loving, serving, obeying the true and living God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, pause again. Think about this with me. Um, Those of you who know me well know that I love the great outdoors. You know that I love to be in the woods or hiking in the mountains. So what I'm about to say is not in any way meant as a a put-down to nature lovers. I am a nature lover. Hello, my name is John. I'm a nature lover. Um, But here's the problem, and, and nature lovers, you know, will often say, I feel closest to God when I'm in the outdoors. I get that. But here's the problem. Here's the warning. Here's what the Bible says. When someone goes to Colorado and gets a rocky mountain high from seeing the majesty and splendor of creation there and, and says, wow. You know, there's got to be a God because this just couldn't happen by accident. And then in that moment, feeling that he or she has had a truly spiritual experience which has confirmed belief in a creator, he or she then thinks that thereby, with belief in a creator, that he or she is thereby right with God. As though believing that there is a creator is sufficient for salvation. That person's made a tragic mistake. Because this passage, in fact, says it's no no great spiritual insight to look at the Rocky Mountains 
or a, or a beautiful October morning and evening in Louisiana and then believe that there is a God as though you were the only person that ever came to that conclusion. This passage says that that, the reality of an eternal creator, is obvious and self-evident and has always been so. And really all you have to do is just look in the mirror and see the image of God, his handiwork. But you see, that knowledge of God, the knowledge of his eternal power and divine nature perceived in the things that have been made, that is not a knowledge which saves anyone. In fact, it is just enough knowledge of God to render every person without excuse for not worshiping, serving, loving, glorifying, and obeying the true and living God. So it's no assurance at all for someone to say, oh, I I know there's a God, I believe there's a God, I feel close to God when I'm in the woods or on the river. If that's it, if that's the, the sum and the highest expression of that person's knowledge of God, then it's just enough knowledge to render that person without excuse for not worshiping, serving, living his or her life for the glory of God. And ultimately, this kind of knowledge of God through creation becomes in itself a kind of idolatry of nature. This suppressing of the truth in unrighteousness leads to idolatry, worship of the creation or the creature within creation instead of the creator. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Again, who is this passage talking about? Well, it's talking about all humanity in general in our, our fallen nature. And, and, but in particular, it has special focus on the manifestation of the sinful fallenness and it, in the Gentile world and, and how sin took effect in the Gentile world. As I said, in chapter 2, Paul is going to indict the Jewish people in, on, on other grounds, but here he's focusing on the, the Gentile world of idolatry. But look, it's not frozen in the first century. The Word of God is addressing us. The Word of God is speaking to us, to you, to me, today. And speaking about all of us in our fallen nature, our fallen condition of original sin. We might ask the question about this passage. Well, now, when did this happen? When did they, when did they not honor God? When did they, we, become futile in our thinking? When did their foolish hearts become darkened? Well, in one sense, in one sense, we can say that this happened when Adam sinned against God and plunged himself and his wife and all their posterity, you and me, and everyone else, under the wrath and curse of God. It began there. By one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And then, having been corrupted, infected by sin, it works itself out. 
And it works itself down through history. Once human nature was corrupted by sin, sin, like an infectious disease, began to spread and grow and manifest itself in various ways as it spread and increased throughout the growing human population so that when we get to the days of Noah, in Genesis 6, we read that, quote, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Divine diagnosis. There is none righteous, no, not one. So what we have here in Romans 1, 21 through 23, is a description of the debilitating effects, the corrupting effects, the, the death-dealing effects of sin upon humanity that continues to this very day and corrupts humanity Today And ultimately, the basic expression of our fallenness, our suppression of the truth by our unrighteousness, is seen in idolatry. And that is simply the worship of something other than the true and living God. Idolatry is not limited to primitive pagan peoples bowing down to statues and totem poles. Idolatry is at the root of fallen human nature in you and me. As John Calvin said, the human mind is a factory of idols. There is something terribly, radically wrong with us. And it is that we don't want to worship the true God. We'll worship anything and everything except the one who made us. We, in our fallen nature, suppress the truth about God. We don't want God to be God. We don't want to be accountable to God. We try to push Him out of our consciousness, but we cannot escape the reality. We cannot escape the reality that because we're created in the image of God, we are going to worship something. And by worship, I simply mean depend on something for our happiness. That's what worship is. Depending on something for your happiness. Financial status, power status, standing in the community, personal reputation, personal popularity, personal power, personal pleasures, money, Sex, power, leisure. We look to those things for our happiness. We think they will make us happy. That's why we worship them. That's why we entrust our security to them. That's, that's, that's why we think we find our personal value, our personal self-esteem, our personal meaning in life in all these things other than the true and living God. It's idolatry. And you know, really, the ultimate idol? The ultimate idol? Is me, wonderful me, a creature who has the audacity to mock, scorn, curse and defy his eternal creator. Not a pretty picture. And this idolatry 
leads to all manner of immorality. That's what's coming in this passage. There's a connection. There's a connection between idolatry and immorality. This is who we are apart from Jesus Christ. It may be contrary to everything you've ever learned or heard, but this, this is the divine diagnosis. And so, for that reason, you see, for that reason, I hope, oh, I hope, I hope that you can say, I hope that you will say with all your heart the words of Romans 1, 16 and 17. I, I, I hope because this is the divine diagnosis of who you are. I, I, I hope you will say, now I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, even me. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, a right standing with God is revealed from faith, for faith, faith in Jesus Christ as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel that saves us out of our death and out from under your wrath. We pray, Lord, that your word will renew our minds, change our hearts, transform our lives, that we may live more fully and faithfully as people who love, adore, and worship you the true and living God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith. As we say together the Philippian Creed from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2. Christians, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.